Hi, I'm James. And I'm Cairo. And we're bringing you Who Cares Wins. This is the podcast all about caring for somebody you love. Sharing your stories about some of the amazing work that carers do out there, but also not shying away from some of the darker things. And trying to do it with a bit of a smile on our face, because I think sometimes, James, we just have to laugh. And please do subscribe, click that little button, and if you enjoy our conversations, please do rate them as well, because it really helps us to share some of these stories with people across the country who are often feeling extremely isolated. Well, episode, full episode number two, James, so that's super Woo-hoo. exciting, and I think we're both pretty excited by how much res- positive response and feedback we've had over the first one. So, so here's the thing, right? I've known a load of people for a very long time and did not know that they had a caring role until they listened to the podcast and were like, oh, hey, yeah, you're talking about me. And I think that's, that's like something that we're going to come up with all the time. Yeah, I think, I think it's super interesting. I think actually the... Um the amount of people we only see one part of their lives, whether it be at work or your friends, and, and often you're so unaware of you know, what other responsibilities people have like, that they just keep behind closed doors, and I think it's a shame. And we have a new website. Super exciting. So we'd love to have, uh, have feedback on that. Yeah, because it's really good. <laughs> James did it, hence why I think it's really good. It is really good. I'll give him his juice. So please do check it out. And we met with the Carers Trust this week. Super exciting about that as well. Who are the Carers Trust, Kyra? So the Carers Trust are the charity that helps support all of the carer centres across the UK. And actually, if you haven't already engaged with your carer centre, I would definitely recommend quick, quick Google, find your local carer centre and go down there because they can offer incredible support for carers uh, out there. And let's not forget uh, the biggest news of the week is Frank. Who's Frank? <laughs> so Frank is the office dog, and I think he's amazing. Um, Cairo is less fond. But James is very excited we, by the office we'll dog. We'll put something on social media, and you can all give us uh, your opinion of how awesome Frank is. The, um, so this week we're looking at thriving and not just surviving in, your, in a caring role. So what have you got for us, James? Well, so I had a conversation with Tina, uh, who is just an amazing woman. And she was really generous, invited me into her home, and shared uh, what I think was at times a really difficult story. Um, but also a really inspirational story uh, of the journey she's been on. Well, let's, uh, let's have a listen. I met David because I was his French teacher. So before my mm. career um, uh, as a businesswoman, I was a linguist. And when I was putting myself through a postgraduate course in technical translation, I earned money by teaching French in law firms. Wonderful. And David was a lawyer in one of the firms I worked at. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about your uh, relationship with David, partly uh, as a married couple, but also as, as his carer as well. So can you tell me a little bit about the condition that he uh, experienced? Yes, yeah, so David has type 1 bipolar disorder, which first manifested when our second son was born, so that was 1997, um, and David had a very severe episode of depression. That passed, and then over the next few years, there were a couple of more episodes of depression, and then uh, a very shocking episode of mania when I was when I turned forty, and it was after that that he was diagnosed as having bipolar disorder. That must have been very peculiar, sort of going through that process, but not having it diagnosed, and not not being able to describe what it was like. Yeah, I mean, the depression, depressions, most people have an idea of what depression means, although I've never witnessed it. I had no experience of mental ill health before um, David's uh, illness. The mania I had absolutely no idea about and didn't, so didn't recognise the signs as it was coming on, 
really had absolutely no understanding at all. And it was really shocking, very, very frightening, and not that easy to get help. And presumably very isolating as well, because there's a bit of David realising that something's happening. There's a bit of you realising something's happening, but also then the dynamic of whether or not, you know, how much of that you share with your sons and with other people in the family and and so on as well. So so reaching out for help is also complicated by that, presumably. Yeah, my sons were very young when he had his first episode of mania. So um, I, all I wanted to do was to shield them from it. I, I didn't want to share any any of the um, of what was going on. I don't, and I kind of pretended to myself. I think that they didn't notice the early mania. David just seemed really happy and really confident, which was fantastic because after periods of depression, um, it was wonderful to see him apparently so positive. There's a very fine tipping point where someone is going up on the scale and the point at which you realise, actually, you know what, this is a bit much, this doesn't seem right. In David's case, he was at a point where I'm having such a great time, don't stop me now, it really yeah. was. So at the point at which I said, do you think we should go and see the doctor? He said, well, why would we go and see the doctor? I'm fine. And I knew he wasn't fine. Nobody, none of my family or friends had any real experience of it, so nobody could really help me with it. Um, and it was very isolating because I just didn't know, I didn't know what was going on. And actually there's kind of an element of, of shame and embarrassment in, in those situations uh, when you don't understand it. Mm. I don't feel like that now, but at that time I did. And I, I, it was very isolating. And you mentioned that uh, getting help was really difficult. Where did you turn to, to to learn more about what was going on, to identify what you were seeing? So as I said, the first thing I thought was that David should see the GP, even though he didn't feel he needed to, he didn't think he was ill. And when I phoned the GP, the GP said, and remember this is a long time ago and I think that there's so much more awareness now that maybe it's handled differently. The GP said, well, if he doesn't want to come and see me, there's nothing I can do. So that was that that door shut in my face there. Then I phoned up one of the mental health charities and talked it through and I said, you know, I don't know what's happening, he's had depression and now we've got this. And they said, well, it sounds like mania, but unless he's a danger to himself or to anyone else, there isn't much that can be done unless he's, if if he was a danger, he could be sectioned. But otherwise, it kind of has to run its course. So that was also not that helpful for me. And it wasn't until David was arrested that we got any help at all. Gosh, the emotional strain of seeing that build up and all of the drama around that must have been extraordinary for you. Yeah, it, 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 was, it, it was a surreal experience. You know, he's a really accomplished lawyer, very respected, very competent, very responsible, very balanced guy when he's not ill. It's really hard to, it was so hard to fathom. And it's, you know, it still is. You know, most of us are fairly on, on a fairly balanced level, but to see someone go from such such lows to such highs is it's quite frightening. And and how did you deal with the emotional turbulence of that? I think that my way of de- I'm a very practical person. I'm very pragmatic, so I think my way of dealing it with it was to just be really practical. So emotionally, I think I just shut down. Actually, I think. You know, the, 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 the wall went around my the, that part of myself and I just did what I needed to do to keep the family going. Mm. So remember, as I said, I had two young sons. I couldn't fall apart. I had to keep the ship afloat. 
Um, so I think I really emotionally switched off, which is not very healthy. And were you able to talk to any members of your extended family or friends? Could you could you relate to them and talk about what was going on, even if you didn't have the sort of the proper medical language for it? Oh, my family were fantastic. I was very very lucky. I had really close family and really close friends and a couple of medical friends who were really supportive and and um, able to sort of enlighten me a little bit. Um, and yeah, I did open up. I really did open up to family and friends. Presumably, your family and friends shared the, some of the struggle that, that you did to understand what it was and, and know how to help. Uh, did they uh, did, did they need um, kind of guidance from you on what would be helpful, or were they just listening ear? Um, a bit of both. My family, my immediate family, had no experience of, of mental illness. I mean, we were very blessed not to have had that. It was a real learning journey for them, and I definitely sp- had to spend time explaining, helping them to understand. And even now, if you don't actually live with it, it's very hard for people to understand the impact mm. of mental illness on, on, on the family and, and the wider community, I guess, which is why it's so great that this, the, the awareness of mental illness has grown so much since we started our journey you know, over 20 years ago. I think people are starting to understand more. But back then, yeah, there was a lot of me having to explain and still a lot of misunderstanding and, and people, friends and family not really being able to accept that David's behaviour, which at times was really unacceptable because the filter, you know, when you're uninhibited, completely uninhibited and there is no filter, you know, what people will do and say is, is quite shocking yeah. to everybody else. And that's a struggle. That's a struggle for people to understand that that's illness and not the person. And presumably you then find yourself in between because you you both want to protect David and you understand what's going on, but you also want to protect and help whoever else is on the, on the other end of that as well. So you sort of feel torn yeah. in, in both directions. Yeah, completely torn. And for my, you know, for my children, for example, as I said, they were very little when we started on the journey. My first son, had just second son, had just been born. I wanted to shelter them. Um, I actually, I realised in hindsight that that's not necessarily the best thing to do in terms of them, them building resilience it would have been better to have been more open at the time. Because for their, for them, you know, it's hard to explain why Dad, who normally is up and out and taking you to play tennis and taking you to watch football, is in bed under the duvet, totally incapable of communicating with you. And, mm. you're, you know, you're a little boy who wants his dad. And Dad just isn't there, emotionally absent. So, so where, did, where did you go to learn what was happening and what was going on? There were books that I could read. David's psychiatrist was great in that he always had time for me, so he would always, you know, even though David was his patient, he would always talk to me, so when I had questions I could ask him. So one of the things that you've really identified as being important is, is how to not simply get through and, and manage, but actually how to thrive rather than to survive. I wonder how you went about looking after yourself as well as looking after David in your relationship. Mm, that's a, that's a really good point because look, I set up as a, as you know, I set up a first aid training company um, at about the same time that David started to get ill, and the first principle of first aid is that you take care of yourself first because if you get yourself into trouble, you can't help anyone else. That's just the same with, with mental health. If you're looking after someone with a mental illness, 
if you don't look after yourself and make sure that you are robust uh, mentally and physically, you can't be a carer. Um, it's really, and it's really hard for people who are carers to understand that because the inclination is just to give, give, give. But it's a bit like a jug of water, you know, you get up to the brim. If you keep pouring water in, it, it, it overspills and, and is uncontained and, and isn't of, of any use. I, I realised fairly quickly that I needed, I needed help. And so when I said that I closed down emotionally, I did on a day-to-day basis, but, what I, but I had to have a release emotionally. And I, so I found a counsellor. And that was just a lifesaver for me because I had somebody who was there just for me, just to listen to me without any judgment, without knowing everybody else in my, in my immediate family and amongst my friend group, who I could just pour everything out to. And she could contain that and hold me and take care of me. And that, that was invaluable. And then I took up some exercise. So I took up Pilates and um, just because that was something that appealed to me. And again, that was something that kept my body strong, gave me an opportunity to switch off from what was going on at home. And did, did you do it with other people as well? Yeah, yeah. Very, I joined okay. a gym to do that. Yeah. And, and that was great too. But I remember the first few sessions I went to, at the end of the class, the teacher would say, OK, let's do 10 minutes of, of meditation now. And she'd turn off the lights and we'd lie flat on our mats and you know, she'd be going through the imagine this and imagine that. And I would just be lying on my back, crying and crying. And all I can remember is feeling the tears running down my face and trying not to let anyone else know that I was crying. But it was an amazing release for me. So by, by the end of the class, I looked an absolute wreck, but actually <laughs> I, felt, I felt so much better. So, yeah. And it, it, it's really interesting how um, sometimes the, the really, when you're going through difficult times, it, it's not at the most challenging moment that, you let, that your emotions come out. It's, it's when someone comes to help or says, are you all right? Or yeah. when, when you have that release that suddenly yeah. Yeah, you lose control. Yeah. Um, but you need to. You people, you, everybody needs that. You can, you can care, but you have to have some outlet for yourself. And, and how did you discover that Pilates and counselling were... For you, I mean, there, there, were, there are so many different things to choose from. What drove you to those, those two outlets? I'd had some bereavement counselling. My mother had died when our first son was born. We, we, had, we didn't have a great run in the early years of our marriage. So, yeah, my mother had died and I um, had just given birth and I felt emotionally vulnerable. And the GP suggested that I have some bereavement counselling. So I'd already discovered counselling. So it was kind of a natural place to go when I started feeling vulnerable when David got ill. I think I'm probably fairly in tune with myself. So I can recognise when I'm not the, when I need some help to cope. Exercise. I'd always done some kind of exercise. I don't know. I think Pilates was probably just a thing of the moment. And it fitted in with the times, you know, the kids' school run. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah it's, not, it's yeah. not a hugely scientific yeah, I process don't think right? it, I don't think it matters what it is <clears throat> as long as it's something that takes you away from your caring role yeah. and gives you an opportunity to switch off and focus on yourself and, and what, what advice do you have for other people going through that process to enable them to kind of shift out of that space and as you say have, have a bit of a release and time to focus on them and, and what they need to sustain themselves however difficult it is you find you, you build in some space into your time into your schedule where 
you're doing something for you, something that gives you pleasure, that allows you to... So your sons are now 22 and 24. They must have gone on quite a journey as they learned more about their father's condition and, yeah. of course, the role that you had. So have they been, been more supportive as they've, as they've grown to understand that? Yeah, they've definitely become more supportive. I think that it was very difficult for them because, obviously, when they were little boys, I did shield them. Um, if I was giving advice now, I would say, of course, you want to shield your children, but you need to involve them in what's going on for their parent. Because if they don't understand, it's actually really difficult for them um, to be supportive and to build any resilience. They, they, need to, they need to... Obviously, you have to adapt to the way that you tell a child, depending on their age. It was painful for them. It was difficult for them to understand. And with each successive, successive episode, there were bridges to be built after the episode. Mm. Um, and that has been really challenging. And I have always done everything I can to make sure that those bridges were built because it's so important for them to have a good relationship with their father. You know, they're great kids. Their dad's a great guy. He's been a great father. And I suppose it's something that doesn't happen overnight as well. So it, it, it's a constantly evolving and changing uh, yeah. kind of dynamic. Yeah, and I'm not a very patient person. So one of, the, <laughs> one of the real challenges for me has been trying to be patient and actually learning that time really does heal. It's an extraordinary story that you're telling and it's very gracious of both you and David to, to share so honestly and, uh, and, and, and generously. What have you learned about yourself going through that process? I've learned that I do have a very resilient character but I've also learned how important it is not to close down and that by sharing with other people you can really change the outcome but what I've really learned is that when I have reached out, it's really helped me and it's really helped other people that I've spoken to. And that the way forward is very much about people sharing, sharing their stories and supporting each other. Yeah, and that's, that's absolutely what we're hoping to do through Mobilise. So thank you very much for sharing your story. You mentioned that uh, you and David are no longer together, but you're still really close and what what does the future hold for you guys yeah <laughs> we are still really close we care very much about each other we're not together and part of the reason that we're not together is that i became too much of a carer right. and we were husband and wife and david didn't want a carer i think that the future is very positive we have a great relationship Tina, thank you so much. And uh, you, you've got to dash off because you're going on holiday in a moment. So I'm going to let you go and pack. I am, thank you. <laughs> Lovely to meet you. So, I mean, what an amazing woman Tina is. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's so much in that. That's, um, I mean, yeah. there's, there's a bit of me wonders whether uh, Tina has this, like, down. And, and certainly from the way she talks, it feels like she's uh, got everything in place and knows how to manage. Um, but I'm also aware that one of the challenges that we have in the world of caring is that it feels like everybody else is better than you. Um, and I'm, I'm sure from what Tina says that she has really low moments uh, and that's, that's tough. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting. I think she definitely sounded like she's absolutely nailing, you know, being a carer. Um, and I think, you know, she's also been carer for a long time. So often, I was talking to a carer recently, and she said, 
I'm not a carer with an L plate. And I think it was, it was an, interesting, <laughs> uh, an interesting phrase where you, know, you learn to deal with it because you have no other option. So I, I'm sure she had some incredibly difficult patches where she really struggled. And actually, it's only with high insight that you can kind of find that structure and that, and that, and that yeah. support there. So, um, but no, I mean, there was definitely factors in her ability to be able to cope so well. I think what for me was really stood out was her self-awareness and the need to look after herself. And I mm. think actually that's an incredibly rare quality and, and I, it's one that I didn't have. I wish I had. But, but here's a challenge for you, right? Because if you, if you ask anybody, is it important to make time for yourself and to look after yourself? The, the answer is clearly yes, right? So, so what happens when I know I need the help and I know I need the respite, but I just can't, like, that isn't an option mm. for me? I think it's, it's, it's strange. I think being a carer, so often you put your own health and well-being second to the person you're caring for. And often because it's someone you love, like it's my mum, I'm doing it because I love my mum. I, I, like, there's also this kind of strange hierarchy of condition where you know, my mum suffers with quite severe mental health conditions, so my blue moments feel so minor compared to that. And yeah. I think there's, there's a certain amount of, you know, you have to really allow yourself to not devalue what your own, your own, you're going through because you know, there's a lot of really difficult emotions you deal with being a carer. And if you don't look after yourself, it, it does all come crashing down, and it has done for me, and, it, and I'm sure it has done for, for many others. And I think it's, you know, logically, that you have to look after yourself, but actually when you put the list, when you put it down on a list, it, 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 it's never the top priority. And I guess one of the things that we're learning is that a lot of this is about uh, setting things up in advance. Mm. So making sure that before you get to breaking point, you're, you're able to build the support network and all, all of the various different bits that then mean when you're really struggling that you've, you've got something that you can rely on. Completely. I think that, that sense of foresight and, and knowing what's coming. I mean, somebody described it recently to me as if being a carer is a little bit like driving along the motorway with the lights off yeah. and you're suddenly swerving as something else comes in front of you. You know, knowing what, being able to turn those lights on and knowing what's coming, you know, you know there's, there's a curve coming somewhere. You don't necessarily have to adjust that much, but you, you, know, you need to, to see that. I thought it was really interesting how Tina felt that things might have changed over time, but that when she first started caring for David, that there was a real shame and embarrassment about the mental health situation. And even close friends not really understanding what was going on and almost having to protect them as well as look after David. Yeah, mental health is such a difficult one. I think, and I'd like to say that the, there's been a change in perception of mental health and I think there has I think people talk about it now in a way that it hasn't but so much of the stigma still exists and so much of particularly mental health where you know I think Tina talked about it it's that how you separate someone from their mental health condition and I actually remember the day when I was young that I I managed to compartmentalize my mum and her condition so I could hate her condition and hate what that condition did to her and the way it, it affected her but still love my mum and seeing them as separately. But because mental health is so intrinsically part of someone, mm. it's really hard to do that. And especially, you know, like Tina said, sometimes mental health makes people act in a way that is incredible. Like, you're like, don't do that. What are you doing? Well, and she mentioned the challenge of David's kids finding him under the duvet, not really wanting to come out. And, and separating that, the illness from the person and the behaviour is, is really hard there. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's, I, I, when I listened to that, I was laughing because it was exactly the same. It's the, 
you know, why can't my mum go to parents' evening? And as a young person, you don't really understand. And I mean, as, as an old person, you still don't really understand. And I think it's incredibly difficult. And, and actually, one of those where mental health affects you in a way that, you know, unless you've really been close to it, it's hard to, to fully understand. Tina also mentioned uh, kind of emotionally switching off in order to cope. And, and I've been really struck by how many people we speak to who describe that phenomenon that uh, it's all just too much to even start unpicking. So actually shutting down that emotional, emotional stuff and getting on with the, the practical things at hand kind of take priority? I think it's because it's easier to deal with. You know, the dealing with, okay, I need to sort out the doctor's appointment or the, that's, that's easy to deal with. Dealing with some of the emotions that you have to, you have to go through is, is the hard bit. The, you know, shame and the anxiety and the guilt I mean, carer's guilt is a real thing. It's, um, they're not emotions that are easily processed. Mm. And I think, I, don't, I, I think we like to think it's a bit of a choice. I think it's more of a necessity, actually. You know, you have to be in a very strong position to really start to have time and space to talk about, understand, digest those emotions, because it's incredibly difficult. And I think that, that links back to something that you've taught me, which is around the importance of addressing the isolation point. Mm. So making sure that not only do you have uh, your existing friends and family to support you, but also being able to talk to other people who know what it's about. And yeah. it, it's really exciting to see that community starting to, to come together around uh, uh, Mobilize and mm. see, them, see those people supporting each other really effectively. Yeah, and I think I think it's that exactly that. I think you can all, you can be told a hundred different ways by a hundred different people, but actually hearing from someone who's going through something very similar that they're feeling those same emotions. I remember the first time I went to a carer centre and and sat opposite someone and you know kind of opened up a little bit and and shared some emotions I was dealing with which were quite difficult. And all it takes is someone opposite just to nod and be like, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've done that. And it's like it's, it's crazy how reassuring it is, just mm. knowing someone's out there. And I think that's why isolation is such a problem for carers. And the fact that we don't talk about it is such a problem because, you know, like we said earlier, they, there are so many people out there, we just we kind of keep this bit of our lives hidden. Well, thank you so much, Tina and David, for sharing your story. It's been really uh, powerful to hear your highs and some of your lows as well. Um, and Tina, you were away on holiday when, uh, you were just about to go away on holiday when, when we spoke, so I hope you had a lovely time and I hope you're going to send us some holiday snaps um, uh, when you get back. Um, that's it for this uh, episode and uh, we hope that you'll join us for the next one. Thanks, everyone.